Hi, I'm John Rogers. I created the show Leverage and wrote Transformers, and you're listening to Genretainment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment over here at SciFiPulseRadio.com. We're your hosts, Marks and Julie, and today we are speaking to writer and consultant Jennifer Dornbush about her new book, Forensic Speak, How to Write Realistic Crime Dramas. She gives us the scoop on how real forensics works, how to apply this information to writing and filmmaking, and how her unusual childhood led to her fascination with the field. Now, before we get started with the interview, we wanted to point out that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality On Demand. It's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. You can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Also, before we go to the interview, I wanted to give a quick shout out to my friends at the sci-fi web series Aiden 5. Hi Aiden 5. <laughs> Currently Aiden 5 is filming season 2 and I had the pleasure of joining the crew as a fight choreographer. I also took a few, you know, pictures and behind the scenes uh, videos and well let's just say you'll see my face at least once if not more in season two. <laughs> Good thing is they have a workaround for that. Aww. <laughs> <laughs> hope I don't scare away their audience. <laughs> they are a great group to work with, and I look forward to working with them some more. I think the fights we have set up are going to look awesome. Uh, it is safe to say that if you enjoyed Season 1, I think you're going to love Season 2. It's not a spoiler to, to mention that you can be multiple people because of clones since it's Season 2, right? Yeah, yeah, you'll see me. I'm different people. I have backstories mm -hmm. that I've created. He, he worked out backstories for uh, each one of them for like yeah. a full five seconds, I think, before <laughs> <laughs> each one. So um, I, think, I think one of my characters needs to start like a Facebook page. Start. Yeah, you should. Uh, uh, do you go by numbers or do they have different names? I don't know. I know they have names, I think. Yeah, they have names. They have names. I'm sure there's Facebook in Aiden Five's world. A uh, sponsor, even. We could do that. Yeah. Maybe it's Clone Book. Clone Book. Clone Book. <laughs> okay, Aiden Five, start Clone Book. This, <laughs> this could catch on. Yes. Okay, so anyway, that's enough of that. Now let's get started with our featured interview for today with writer Jennifer Dornbush. You're listening to Jean Entertainment, and this is Marks. And Julie, and today we are speaking to Jennifer Dornbush, the writer of Forensic Speak, How to Write Realistic Crime Dramas. So welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thank you. Well, you have a really interesting background you talk about in the beginning of the book. Talk about your, your family background as the daughter of a medical examiner and how that kind of shaped your view of the world and eventually would evolve into this book. Can you uh, tell our audience a little bit more about that? Sure. Yes, I grew up um, in northern Michigan in a home where my father was a medical examiner and the office, the county medical examiner office, was actually in our home. <laughs> and um, so pretty much everything related to death investigation came to our house, except for autopsies. Those were actually done at the county hospital. But he, he worked in that field for about 23 years, so the entire time while I was growing up, I pretty much had a firsthand look at death investigation, and many times it involved family, the family going out on investigations or helping him with paperwork and such. So it was uh, very much a front seat to that world. That either sounds like the greatest way to grow up or the quickest route to a lifetime of therapy. <laughs> I know. Oh, my goodness. Possibly Thankfully both. I was... <laughs> yeah, maybe. I know my therapist at one time when I was telling her about some of this, she's like, oh, I'm so sad for you. And I was like, sad? I'm the best child in the world. <laughs> well, it was very intellectually stimulating. Yes. It was. It was. We literally would talk about cases around the dinner table. 
So, yeah, we learned a lot about science and um, human nature. <laughs> and see, a lot of kids nowadays aren't lucky enough to have discussions around the dinner table at all. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. In fact, when I was learning to drive, my father's requirement for us as new drivers before we could get our license was that we had to accompany him on a case, an accident scene, a fatality, sorry, a fatality scene where the driver had been killed by drunk driving. Mm. Oh, that's brilliant, actually. I bet you were a very careful driver. I never drank and drove in my life. (laughs) So, yeah, he wanted to really press home the... uh, there were, there's a lot of drinking and driving accidents, fatalities, so you really wanted to press that home. So. Yeah. So It worked. <laughs> so um, I'm assuming then did both you and your sister get equally you know, interested in this field as a result? Was that something that when you were a kid you were like, yeah, that's what I want to do? I was completely, utterly embarrassed of it. I wanted nothing to do with it. I didn't tell my friends about it. Yeah, we tried. I tried to sweep it under the rug. So I was completely embarrassed because this is like way pre pre CSI. So you didn't see. It just wasn't as popularized as it is today. You know, now everybody knows what it is and understands. But back then, it was just really odd and weird. And I thought, you know, I would tell people. Well, my dad, you know, when they say, what's your dad do? I say, oh, he's a medical examiner. Well, what's that? Nobody even knew what a medical examiner was. And I would say, well, you know, he investigates deaths and he does autopsies. And he'd be like, what's an autopsy? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, so that was the world we were living in. It made you sort of like the Adams family. So you wanted to definitely not. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, but you, and I don't. I, my sisters didn't really talk about it much either. But I think you, you embraced it a little bit more later, right? Because there's a, a story in the book about about a skeleton. Mm-hmm. Yes, we had a skeleton, a actual human skeleton that lived in our barn, and his name was Sam. <laughs> <laughs> and we like to play tricks with him. Um, and I also learned all my anatomy with Sam. So, <laughs> all my skeletal anatomy in college. So, yeah, I can be taken yeah, completely wrong. I learned all my, my, anatomy, my anatomy from Sam, Sam in the barn. No, he's a skeleton. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound good. <laughs> uh, yes, we we also had a leg in our barn um, that my dad was keeping. It, there was something going on with the case that was sort of questionable. And so in case the case ever went to trial, he wanted to keep a section of this person so that he had some backup evidence, and I don't remember all the details of it, but that leg lived in our barn for quite a while, years, (laughs) I think. (laughs) In northern Michigan, that's about as good a deep freeze as you can get to keep things, I imagine. (laughs) Yes, yes, that and a big gallon of formaldehyde. (laughs) Pretty disgusting. (laughs) I remember the smell of that from science classes. That's pretty strong. (laughs) Yeah, it's so strong. Now, you did eventually um, embrace this because, you know, you've obviously written this book and gone on and uh, embraced this as a career, I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. So can you kind of mm-hmm. t- yeah. tell us about how that came about? Sure. I Once I actually started writing and deciding, like, ah, oh, you know, I want to be a screenwriter. I want to do this for a living and started to play around with, you know, you play around with what kind of stories you want to tell and where you fit into the landscape of screenwriting. And I found I was really, oddly, I didn't expect this, just sort of 
throw, perpetuating myself into crime and mystery stories. And I thought, well, this, I guess, obviously makes sense because that's the world in which I grew up. Yeah. <laughs> so, so then I decided, wow, I grew up around this, and but I, I'd like to know more. So I actually went back to get a certificate in forensic science through the Forensic Science Academy. And the book actually is a result of the academy. I needed to do a project in order to graduate. Most of the people in the class were like cops or they were EMTs. They were wanting to get into like DNA studies or or something to do with biology. And I was the only writer in the class. So I asked the director of the school, I said, you know, I'd like to do something that kind of um, goes along more with where I want to go in my career with this. Can I write a handbook for writers? Just something that I can have on hand to quickly be able to remember all these terms and and everything. She's like, oh, I think that's a great idea. So the book actually started as just kind of a personal project for me. I had no intentions of publishing it at all. But then when my writer friends heard what I was doing, and a lot of them write procedurals and crime dramas, they were like, we want that book. You have to have that book. You need to publish that book. So I said, no, I'm not going to. (laughs) I said, I'll share it with you guys. But they're like, no, no, you really need to. So especially one gal in my group, she really kept pushing me until I finally pitched it to Michael Weesey Productions, and they loved it. So Excellent. And we really like the format of the book. You take each concept or term and explain what it is, uh, examples of where the reader may have seen it on TV or film, and then how a writer could use it in their story. Can you talk a little bit more about how you came about with that structure, and <laughs> were any of, of, <laughs> of the examples hard to, to find without just pulling from every, like, a CSI gazillion episode CSI out there. episodes out there. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. Yes, well, the, it actually took us a year to figure out the format. From the time I pitched it to the time I actually signed the contract, we were spending most of that year figuring out, like, what is this book and what's the best way to get this information across. So then we really just boiled it. It went through a lot of different iterations, but we finally boiled it down to this very – user-friendly format of just, you know, what is, you know, taking terms, there's eight different chapters that deal with basically the foundations of forensic science, and then in each chapter, there's a whole slew of terms, and so I just talk about what is it, where can you see it, you know, in film or television, and then as a writer, or any sort of, you know, entertainment professional, producer, director, how can I use this to make my work better, to make my crime writing or Um, producing better so that's how that happened and then in terms of how the examples I just personally like a very wide variety of film and television so I just started looking across the board and I mean you'll find examples in here not just you know of course there's your CSI examples and um, some of the more the bigger crime shows but I also found things like in independent films. I found um, comedy. There's even great examples in some um, comedic shows and comedic films. So I just, I think it's really stemmed out of my own, I guess, my own viewing habits. I have a wide, a wide variety of viewing habits. <laughs> what TV shows and movies, maybe you can mention some in the book and some that maybe aren't in the book that are, that are more recent, do you feel actually get the forensics information correct? Mm-hmm. Well, it's really interesting. That's a great question because, honestly, most film and TV do, on the surface, get the forensics right. It's more where things start to t- to bend a little bit. It's more when you have to um, 
it, it happens more when, when you start to break down, like, the procedure and the timeline. Uh-huh. So what I've noticed is that on the surface, you know, like the term, most of the terms are right, and there's very interesting cases, but in terms of how something is investigated, that's where things start to bend because you only have 48 minutes. Yeah. So DNA doesn't take three minutes to find out. <laughs> it takes several days to several months, <laughs> things like that. Yeah, so I just kind of, yeah, oh, go so ahead. I was going to say, yeah, I, you know, we've read where, sometimes attorneys were getting so annoyed with the rise of the popularity of these shows that juries were expecting the forensics to happen like it does on television. And Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, if if you look at news online and, you know, there's a high profile death of, you know, some famous musician or whoever, and they're like, and then the toxicology results will be done in six to eight weeks. And people are like, it's obviously a cover up. Why is it taking that long? And it's like, well, (laughs) it takes, that long it's not it's not a television show it really does take a, a while <laughs> it does it does and I mean I know some of the um coroners and um investigators down at the LA coroner's office and I've heard from them firsthand like the whole Michael when Michael Jackson died I mean it did take I think eight weeks or more to I think it was more actually I think it might have been up to six months to actually get all his toxicology results because death is the great equalizer and he got put in the queue yeah <laughs> like everybody else <laughs> yeah so, it's not like that's the only person that died in LA that week <laughs> yeah right exactly so it's things like that where you, you kind of have to fudge your speed up procedure to get things done in, in 48 minutes. Yeah, I guess it would be a pretty boring show if if every episode was, you know, then halfway through and six months later and then continue the story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, obviously there's some things they show that are just blatantly just not how it's done, but there's usually what I've noticed is they're really quick blips, you know, just quick moments on the screen. So. Is there a particular TV show or movie that you can think of as the most accurate forensic type shows? Honestly, like, when you're looking at, like, your CSIs and your NCSIs, they, again, they do a good job. I mean, I kind of think they're all about as accurate as they possibly can be within the parameters that they're working. And, I mean, the thing is, too, like, all these shows, they have consultants. They go, they talk to the the coroners. They talk to the police officers. Mm -hmm. They talk to lawyers. So they can't. They try to start, what I've noticed is they try to start from talking with writers who've worked on these shows, they try to start with the best, the most truthful, authentic representation that they can, but then story happens, <laughs> so, and they need more conflict, or they need drama, yeah. so then it's not like they're trying to purposefully not do the research or twist things around, but, you know, they, they start with the best they can, and then some things have to yeah and coming get tweaked <laughs> and coming at it from a writing perspective you can recognize yeah that needs to be I can see why they did that because of the story so mm-hmm. you do have a chapter on blood splatter and you referenced Dexter a few times which we really like that show so how about how accurately does that show handle the blood splatter evidence I'm gonna be honest I've only watched most of the first season and the very first episode, the pilot episode, they do a really, a really good job. And then I've, I kind of noticed from there, they, they really pulled back a bit on actual blood spatter investigation because it's really complicated, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very complicated, and it's, it's kind of, 
mundane, really. It has to do a lot with math and algebra yeah. and geometry, and that's not very exciting. <laughs> I, so, having Dexter um, run around and try to hide bodies is probably a little more interesting than having him yeah. crunch numbers at a computer for an hour. <laughs> Just a yeah. Plus, I want to see his love story, you know? <laughs> so, it's very interesting. It's way more fun than math. <laughs> yeah. Although I know so, some people be- that think math is more fun, so you never know. Well, but I know some of those types too. Um, no, I think they do a good job of of layering it in enough to to bring us through the investigation. Yeah. And do they actually do the? I imagine they do, but they do the whole stream. Yeah, thing. that was interesting. I'd never seen that before. What, what was that? He has. Uh, he's trying to map out where the blood was, and he puts like yarn, you know, suspended oh. to try to to visualize where it would where it comes mm-hmm. from and explain it to people. Yeah. Yeah. The string, uh, system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, there's that, they, that's still used pretty widely, but there's also computer, more computer generated kind of models that just don't take as long. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess the string but the is string lower, is but visual. it looks good on TV. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. It's very, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. It looks like you're really working, you know, <laughs> If I, I think if I was acting in that, I would just be more concerned with not slipping on the fake blood and falling. <laughs> exactly. So okay, sticky. and you know, real blood is just slippery, you know, it's it's true, it's a danger. It's, actually, the real blood's probably slipperier. The fake stuff yeah. is pretty sticky. <laughs> yeah. I know, we need to write a scene where somebody actually slips on the blood. That would be really funny. Do they, do they put a little... <laughs> On murder scenes, they put like signs going, you know, slower, uh, slippery. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Caution. <laughs> oh, we have a very macabre sense of humor. <laughs> One thing that kind of surprised me a little bit in the book is you actually talk about uh, courtrooms. Yeah, that was an interesting added bonus to it. Yeah, it almost makes it like. I'm sorry. Uh, talk about what? Uh, I'm sorry. Courtrooms and and you oh, know, courtrooms. Yeah, and giving testimony and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Kind of makes mm-hmm. it. A, it's almost like a law and order manual for writers because you get how to catch the criminal, but then how the whole court system kind of works for yeah. the investigation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, you can't have forensic science without courtrooms because that's where often these end up. You're doing these investigations because a lot of times they're going to end up in court. So then what? You know. Yeah. Not if you're Dexter. Yeah. No. He somehow meant, I think if he walked in and put his hand on a Bible, it would burst into flame. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, it was interesting, you know, you have things about good court testimony, such as make eye contact, answer confidently, speak clearly, be confident, things like that. Um, Avoid Mm -hmm. chewing gum. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, bad testimony like shifty eye contact and starting sentences with, I believe, or I'm not sure. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I love improper addresses. Yo, you, hey, listen. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you. Wearing wearing sunglasses. So have have you or uh, any one that you know have some interesting first-hand experience with, with testifying in court? I wish I did. I And, I've, and I'm and i always trying to get on the jury, and they never pick me. One of you can't get on. <laughs> I know. I, I'm trying to think. That's a really good question. All I know is one time when I was trying to get on the jury, the, defending, the, the attorney, the defendant attorney was so 
unprepared. I was completely shocked. It, so that was really surprising to me. He was he couldn't string his questions together and his thoughts, and he would try to ask us a question, but it would come out as a statement. He didn't know what to do. <laughs> so, I don't know. It just really struck me. I always thought, oh, courtrooms look so polished on TV, but not not in real life. No, you get the representation <laughs> you can afford. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, that reminds me. I, there was an episode of that sitcom Becker and he he wanted to get on the jury and he was reading this book and every time he was like well I've been reading this book and they're like dismissed next <laughs> the fact that he read books just nobody wanted him on the jury <laughs> yeah that was pretty much my experience if you had a brain if you if it, if it sounded like you know you had you could reason a thought you were out <laughs> you were done Definitely, that makes you decide you will do everything possible not to get arrested after saying the inside yes, word. Because you're not going to get in that lock, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, for sure. Now, there have been pretty uh, disturbing things, or I guess sort of disturbing, or at least a little uh, stomach churning. Oh. One of the, one of the ones that, were, that I was like, ooh. You should have seen him turn green. It was funny. Um, I can't remember the name off the top of my head now. Oh, the, the, the skin slippage. With yeah. the hand. Oh, that's horrible. Yeah. <laughs> Can you explain oh. what that is to our audience? <laughs> right. So in the process of decomposition of a human body, there comes a time when the body is to a point in decomposition where the skin, the first dermal layer actually can slip off and kind of be in one piece. Now, This is interesting sometimes if you're trying to get a fingerprint and you, I know this sounds really gross, but a lot of times they'll take the skin, you know, of the hand and, and the investigator, the fingerprint examiner will actually slip it on their own hand in order to get a good print. Mm -hmm. I know I've seen that on some TV show. It was either Dexter or Bones or something. And uh, Mm. when he told me that, I said, oh, I know, I've seen that on TV. He's like, you're kidding. It happens. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. Yep. It happens like around 36, 37 hours under normal conditions of decomposition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, bless bless your heart. Mark didn't really have the stomach to watch our kittens be born. I was the midwife, and he he left the room after she started eating the... uh, the amniotic the sac, yeah. and uh, he disappeared and wouldn't come back until after she was done. I was coaching her. I'm like, you're doing so good. I'm eating, like stepping out and grabbing a bite to eat and coming back. And he's just like, how can you do that? I'm like, I'm hungry. <laughs> I've been taking care of her all day. I've been a birthing coach. It's exhausting. <laughs> oh, yes. I remember we used to have kittens born all the time. I remember that whole process. <laughs> She's doing just what she's supposed to. He's like, she's eating yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. A little bloody. Good for her. <laughs> she did it perfectly fine. They all turned out great. So. <laughs> Aw, that's good. Well, what would you say off the top of your head, one of the aspects in the book that you think a lot of, uh, like, our audience probably has never heard of before? Like, what we just covered at Skin Slip and Day. That most people knew about that. Unless I saw that one oh episode of something that I... <laughs> <laughs> Um, and that was probably just for shock value, I'm sure. Oh, probably. <laughs> I personally loved writing about DNA because we throw that term 
and to me, just learning about it was really interesting because we throw that term out all the time and you hear it all the time and present it on television as if it's the end all be all. As, as long as you can get the DNA, everything will be fine. You know, everything will be solved. And it's not always true. And there's just a lot of um, DNA is amazing and using DNA evidence is revolutionary, but it's not foolproof. So I think it was fun, and I think it'd be—I think maybe for your listeners to to read that section, or just to kind of become a little more familiar with kind of the limitations of it, even the amazingness of it, but also the limitations. And I think that's one thing we don't really hear a lot about mm-hmm. on television, even just the news. You know, it's always praising DNA, and there's still a long way to go to get mm-hmm. it more perfected. I've always wondered about that because. You always see on television and movies, and there's a crime scene, but it's in, like, a busy area of, like, a city. And they somehow mm-hmm. know that every speck of blood, DNA, and every fingerprint or boot print must somehow be associated with that crime. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you know, in the last week, probably a few thousand people have gone right in that spot, you know? <laughs> yeah. And in real life, it would be really, really difficult to find the right DNA. They may not even look for it because they would find, every, they would find thousands of people's yeah. DNA, or like you know, like on the handles of doors, or right. Find that one yeah, fingerprint. All kinds of places. Yeah. Find that one yeah. fingerprint at the bank. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah, there were some interesting notes on there about limitations of forensics. For example, like fingerprints, you know, we're, on TV, they're magically like, hey, we, we can search this universal database. And, and you point out in the book that there is no such universal database. It's a bunch of little databases. And, a bunch of local ones, yeah. isn't it? Well, and they're not connected, which that kind of blew my mind, too, when I was learning about that. Like, oh, wow. You know, you just assume we can find anybody, and you can actually hide pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> And then, and then sometimes mistakes like uh, in blood splatter, you talk about fly splatter, or because flies that was interesting to hear about. Because flies might walk mm-hmm. through the blood, and then their footprints or their poop could create what looks like a splatter pattern, but really isn't. Right. Right. Exactly. So that was really fascinating. So I would imagine there are some insects that are drawn to a fairly, you know, any place there's a death, you're going to have insects kind of. Yeah, making their home there pretty quickly. How, how quickly yeah, does that exactly. happen? Very quickly, within the first hour or less. I know that was, very, very that was another gross part. <laughs> yes. I was like, within one yeah. hour, the the flies like start laying eggs in you. So you know, it makes me wonder, like, what is it that triggers those flies to go? Okay, it's okay for me to go ahead and start laying eggs. I mean, how do they know you're not sleeping? <laughs> <laughs> well, you, they they can detect the. Probably the subtle chemical differences. Well, you're not. What if they're confused and you're sleeping? Okay, you're not originally a city boy. You've been out in the woods and it doesn't take long for things to start. the The earth is a great um, recycler. Yeah, really. It is. I did. Yeah. So everybody, you're listening when you sleep. (laughs) Keep your mouth closed. (laughs) Keep your mouth closed. That's right. That's right. Oh man. He's he's going to be so much more neurotic after reading your book. Thank you. Well, I'm sorry if I've caused any nightmares. Seems like it didn't bother me any. I was a kid. I was good with it. One thing in your bio that I found interesting was you mentioned a, um, I guess, an air TV pilot. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Oh, um, 
the homebodies pilot is yeah. that what we're yeah. Yeah, referring to yeah <laughs> yeah so this is a half hour pilot that i wrote with um two other writers and it's really it's very loosely based on this this family my family actually but this fam- this quirky family who has well been medical examiner's office has been closed in the town because of budget cuts mm-hmm. and so the dad decides he's going to move it into the home and the family embraces it and they kind of have like little adventures you know they're just trying to be a normal family with normal family things like in the pilot episode the daughter is getting bad grades in school and she doesn't want to be there because she thinks it's boring she's really smart but she's just bored with school and so that's kind of the challenge that they're she really wants to be working with her dad because she thinks it's more exciting, more fascinating. So it's just, just kind of a, you know, normal family things that happen, but then bodies keep coming and appearing every week. <laughs> so it's very, very, very light in the procedural and, and more just about how this family operates in these very unusual circumstances. That sounds interesting. We'd like to see that. <laughs> Me too. Fingers crossed. More meetings. <laughs> yeah. Good luck with that because that does sound like a really good show. Mm-hmm. I, I think I think it's I think we created a new genre like uh, forensic comedy or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean zombie comedies. If you can make comedy out of zombies, you can make it out of forensics. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you know you got to lighten this up, the subject up a little bit. You know. Yeah, well, you'd have to, I mean, you have to be able to just sort of intellectually detach and then also have a little bit of a macabre sense of humor from time to time because, I mean, your mm-hmm. life would be so depressing if, if you didn't. Yeah, fortunately, we, um, my dad had a really good sense of humor that around all this that passed down to us. So, <laughs> yeah, and my poor mom, she's a saint, my mother, she, the what she put up with in that house. <laughs> she, <laughs> She developed a pretty good sense of humor, too. <laughs> and, and she was okay with the dinner conversations and everything? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, their first date, see, I, I say she knew what was coming because their very first date that they ever had, he took her down to see his cadaver in medical school. <laughs> <laughs> and she didn't run. <laughs> nope. Nope. That was their first romantic date. Let's go see my cadaver. <laughs> That's a perfect mm-hmm. test. <laughs> yep. I think I'm going to put a term on on it, forecom, forensic comedy. There you go. Yeah, I like it. Like it. <laughs> Talk to the networks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get the word out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, you also teach workshops, correct? At least we saw that on your website. That's true. Uh, yes. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what those workshops cover and uh, how our uh, listeners can find them? Sure. Right now, I have one um, scheduled at the end of April through the Script Writers Network. And basically, this particular one is just going to be on writing writing the killer procedural. So it's more about how you structure procedurals and what elements have to be in there, what, what, sort of, what kind of characters you need, what sort of um, mystery elements and evidence and that needs to be in there. And then basically just the structure, how, how you should structure the killer procedural. And Buffy Scriptwriters Network is hosting it at Showbiz Store and Cafe on April 27th from 1 to 3. So Now, with all of this forensics information out there, and, and even though DNA isn't 100% reliable, it's still, you know, a big jump in, in what everybody's able to do. And, and you, I mean, it's a good-sized book with all this information. How likely is it that someone could commit, like, the perfect murder that they'd never get caught these days? I mean, okay, the sad truth of it is kind of easy. 
And it's not because we don't have the knowledge or the ways of finding things out. It's It honestly comes down to manpower uh-huh. and, and resources. In resources, there's an amazing article, and I referenced it in this book. And I just thought it's a, actually not an article; it's a whole study that NPR did a year ago, called "Death in America," mm-hmm. and just they spent a year literally going around the country looking at um, the medical examiner and coroner systems in the whole United States and sort of rating them and finding out what kind of resources they had and what what was going on in there, you know, for the for the good and bad. And finding out in a lot of places, yeah, just resources and staffing are either very low or they're under-trained. You know, for instance, coroners don't have to be doctors. It could be your local plumber because Mm -hmm. if you have a coroner system, it's it's usually voted in or elected. So your coroner could be your local electrician or a farmer who's (laughs) out there investigating all the deaths in that county. I always uh, thought that was know? weird. It is weird. You go vote, and it's like vote on coroner. It's like I don't mm-hmm. see, what? like, MD after their name on either one of these. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but if you have a medical examiner system, then that's a whole different ball of wax. They have to be medical doctors. They have to be huh. trained to, to do this. But even so, they may not be trained in actual investigating because it's it's a whole different forensic pathology is very different than just medical practice so knowing what to look for so that's honestly from what this study says a lot of people are getting away with murder i'll say let me rephrase that what are the chances of ever actually getting caught (laughs) yeah yeah scary (laughs) scary chances but we we do not condone murder (laughs) yeah uh, you want to make sure if you're going to murder and disclaimer. <laughs> well, we've we've we love Miami. We've been down there a few times. <laughs> that's sad that that's what we think of when we say murder. Yeah, because because you know we watch Dexter, and almost every time we watch it, we laugh and say, you know, I wonder how many people in Miami or other police department or just citizens get so annoyed because it looks like. There's like a gazillion serial killers just hanging out. In my- oh my goodness! The weather's good. And yeah. they never—they almost never—if they catch someone, it's not the right person. Half the time they don't catch them. I'm like, yep. this is not good PR. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good show. <laughs> yes, it is. it is. It's not real good advertisement for the city of Miami, possibly. <laughs> Uh, no, no, poor Miami. Uh, like they need any any more, you yeah. know, neg- negative publicity. <laughs> hey, you know what? They got gorgeous weather year round. They can deal. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, they do. It's not like Michigan for crying out loud. <laughs> I know. Is there any other projects you have in the works you'd like to? Talk yeah. About? Oh, um, I have two scripts I'm working on. I guess one feature thriller, and one TV pilot. That's a one hour, more procedural, more drama. I I call it a Forensic espionage. That sounds interesting. Kind of, so. You have to keep us updated on that. Yeah, it's just developing. We'll see. We'll see. Well, you'll have two watchers here, so <laughs> two viewers here. Sure. Is this it for nonfiction books? Or are you just mainly focusing on script writing, or is there another, or you might return to nonfiction at some point? Uh, we'll see what happens. Right now, I'm really just focusing on 
yeah, script writing uh-huh. and um, moving my way more deeply into that industry. So, well, hopefully, getting this book published will help. Uh, will help get yeah. some doors open. So, and is there anything else that you would like to? Why don't you let all of our listeners know where they could, you know, find your book, find your workshops, and anything else, any of your stuff online. Oh, sure. Yeah, the main hub is just at my website, jenniferdornbush.com. And there you can sign up for my free Forensic Speak newsletter, which is a monthly publication more directed towards writers. On I send out forensic links and like a, a term of the month, Q&A, like a crime Q&A. You can sign up for that on my website. Um, all my events and workshops I announce on my website. And then um, to buy a book, several ways. Of course, Amazon has the book. And then um, my publisher, Michael Weesey Productions, MWP.com. And the writer store also has the book. So, but the main, yeah, the main hub is um, jenniferdornbush.com. So. Okay. I'm signing up for the newsletter. Yeah, so I was just looking at Mark's yeah. going, why didn't we yeah, know about this? Fun. <laughs> it's and fun. And I'm actually hitting it's him. You. <laughs> and then, yeah, the book has a Facebook page, too. So that's you. And I sometimes post uh, news and events and little quips on the Facebook page, too. Oh. Just, and it's just Forensic Speak on Facebook. Excellent. Oh, okay. Well, thank you so much for talking to us. And you have the, a good rest of the evening. Yes, thank you. Okay, thank oh, you. Take care. Oh, well, you guys are delightful. Thank you so much. <laughs> Hi, my name is David Peterson. I'm the creator of the Dothraki language for HBO's Game of Thrones and the alien language and culture consultant for Sci-Fi's Defiance. And you're listening to Genretainment. Thank you to Jennifer for being on the show. We wish her luck with her book and her other writing projects. So that's it for today's Genretainment. Check back next week with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series including our fun interview with the cast and crew of the supernatural thriller web series Malice. That was very good. We watched the whole whole show. It was very good. Yes. Um, plus, soon after that, we chat with one of the stars of the action comedy web series Adventures of Super 7. And he was a lot of fun to talk to. <laughs> it was, that was a good interview. And don't forget, you can check out all of our past episodes in the archives at scifipulseradio.com. You can also check out the other great shows on this channel, like SFP Now, The Roundtable, and Jeff Trek. Genretainment will be back right here on this channel at scifipulseradio.com next Tuesday. Thanks to everyone for listening. Until Until next time. time.